Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I lived in Missouri for much of my life, teaching about religious diversity and religious practice in a Missouri high school made me appreciate the social beauty and complexity of my surroundings and get more out of living in Missouri. When I started this Classical Ideas project, I lived in Missouri and got to know quite a few scholars of religious studies departments around the state. Having grown up in St. Louis, I noticed a cool project called Arch City Religion pop up sometime in early 2018, which began adding information about the history and practices of diverse houses of worship around the St. Louis metro area. I noticed it was run by Dr. Rachel Lindsay from St. Louis University's Department of Theological Studies. We got in touch. I read her book, Communion of Shadows, Religion and Photography in 19th Century America, out from University of North Carolina Press, and we planned to chat together last summer. It didn't quite work out for scheduling reasons, but I'm delighted to finally have her on the show to discuss her book and religion in my childhood hometown. Dr. Rachel Lindsay is Assistant Professor in St. Louis University's Department of Theological Studies. She has a PhD and MA in American Religion from Princeton University and a BA in Religious Studies from Missouri State University. She is the author of Communion of Shadows, Religion and Photography in 19th Century America from UNC Press. We discussed Communion of Shadows and her fantastic projects, Lived Religion in the Digital Age, which employs digital research to explore, map, and study religious diversity, as well as her project Arch City Religion, which documents valuable information for researchers, students, journalists, and the public, and also uses the rich history and culture of St. Louis to think through the craft of research to show the diverse religious landscape of St. Louis, Missouri. You can find Dr. Lindsay's projects at archcityreligion.org and religioninplace.org, So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rachel Lindsay. Dr. Rachel Lindsay from St. Louis University, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thanks for having me. Can you just spend a moment introducing yourself to the audience? Maybe say what you do every day for a living in the world. Absolutely. Well, I teach at St. Louis University in the Department of Theological Studies. Uh, my area of expertise, my where I where I teach and and write, is in the area of religion in American history, with a special focus on visual and material cultures of American religion. So my day to day is a lot of. Um, teaching about religion and politics and, and sort of the, the world around us. How many how many courses do you teach in a given section at St. Louis University? How many courses do I teach in a given section? How many students do I teach? I mean, like per semester. Sorry. How many courses do you teach per semester at St. Louis University? Well, I've uh, it's, it's varied. I started as a non-tenure track assistant professor, and I was teaching a 4-4 load. Um, and uh, on the tenure track, I'm, I'm teaching a 2-2 load, so... Awesome. Cool. I was just curious. Um, How did you get interested in the academics of religion, like academic religious studies? Did religion come first or did academics come first? How did that all come together for you? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, In in my life story, religion definitely came first. I was not very academically driven when I was um, 
you know, younger in high school. Um, it was really when I got to college and um, was taking some religion classes around the time that um, religion sort of became a, co- a national topic of conversation in ways that I hadn't recognized it before. So I was a freshman in college in uh, the fall of 2001 and taking a Bible class, actually, at what was then Southwest Missouri State University. And suddenly, for the first time, these these conversations around uh, Islam and Christianity and fundamentalism and terrorism were, like, tumbling into each other in ways that I didn't feel very well prepared to to address on a personal level, even though I had been sort of raised in a very religious um uh, family where where religion was just sort of assumed and it was something that was part of our our lives. Um, so the the religion part of things came first. Uh, the academic interest definitely came later, but it's been what's it's been what has sustained me um, for the um, you know the last twenty years or so. Nice. So we're going to discuss a lot about your book today, A Communion of Shadows, Religion and Photography in 19th Century America from University of North Carolina Press. Um, and earlier you mentioned that you're really interested in the uh, digital media aspects of religion, including photography. Can you tell me how you sort of found that area of specialty when you were in your doctoral program? Right. No, absolutely. Um, it's, it's funny that uh the, that I'm now becoming associated with digital technology, digital, digital religion, as it were, because really I come to this from a, a different door, even a back door. I think from from most folks who find themselves doing digital humanities. So my my interest in the digital actually starts much earlier um, with my work on photography in the 19th century. Uh, so in the 19th century, photography was this new technological revolution, right, um, and people began to uh, not only to use photographs, um, for instance, in their family lives and in their religious lives, as I argue in the book, but photography began to sort of shape how people were encountering the world. Um, and I see, I began to see sort of similar, uh, similar uh, movements um, in the last 20 years when it came, when it comes to sort of digital technology, right? Uh, so whether we're talking about sort of the pastoral uses of digital technology or the academic or the theoretical, uh, there's some kind of, there's, there's this sort of assumption, this interest in uh, the, the revolutionary power of digital technology to really fundamentally change the world, right? Um, and I, I hear in that sort of enthusiasm echoes of, of the, the folks that I studied um, who were saying similar things about the 19th century, in the 19th century about, about photography and stereography in particular, but really all forms of, of photography. So my fascination, with, my fascination with photography, to get back to your original question, um, is what has guided me through this whole um, sort of academic trajectory. And that interest actually be, began not with the digital, but with the materiality of photographs that I was finding um, in archives and mm. even to my, my, my grandmother's home. So in the preface to the book, I sort of talk about how it was the, the stereographs and the, the pictures on the wall and sort of the, the material history of photography that was part of my sort of family story really is the seed, I think, of my interest in photography and religion and then later on um, sort of different technological um, developments that are I, I, I hear as echoes to that earlier story. 
when you when you realize this love of photography, did you start dabbling in photography yourself? Like, is this like a side passion for you as well? It was, and in fact, um, I when I was in high school, I took a bunch of photography classes. I even had a dark room in uh, my mom's friend's basement um, um, where I would go and kind of retreat from um, from from the sort of chaos of adolescence. And I could. Uh, you know, find some kind of solace in, in the red glow of, of the dark room. I love that. Okay, so I am really intrigued by the mysterious title of your book, A Communion of Shadows. I just love that. Um, tell me about the importance of this mysterious phrase which you use throughout the book. What does that mean? I mean, it's it's interesting that, that you hear that as mysterious. I guess I wasn't really thinking in, in that register, but... Um, so there's this common phrase in, in Christian history, the communion of saints. It's an, it's an ancient idea, right, that goes back to the, to the earliest formations of Christian community. Um, and by the 19th century, this, this idea of, or this, sort of these debates around the communion table were becoming even more um, charged politically, socially. Um, and so the, 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 the idea of a communion of, of saints has long been part of stories of, of religion. And what I was sort of seeing and, and feeling and, and recognizing in photography is that there was, it, it was sort of more than just this material history that I was interested in. It was the ways in which photographs were being used, as I call in the book, a traffic of objects, right, to, to mediate different, um, uh, different uh, peoples and different um, uh, different realms of existence, to use a, a pretty vague term, but um, to bring people not only in, into communion with each other, sort of um, uh, as temporal contemporaries, but with the biblical past and with, um, in the case of m- memorial and, and mourning photography, with those who had gone on, um, um, you know, in, in, into into the next phase, right? Yeah. Uh, like so, this this sort of tethering of past and present and future is something that I see working out in in in, photo, in photography and photographs in particular. And so, the communion of shadows is intended to invoke that ancient Christian idea of a communion of saints, uh, which also has sort of similar uh, like the 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 mystical body, right? Sort of uh, unites Christians. Um, um, and so the community of shadows is intended to sort of riff off of that while also really drawing attention to the materiality of photography in the 19th century. It's really beautiful. And you start the book by telling such an interesting story about a 22-year-old soldier named Walter Jones who was photographed, then went off to war, and had his life saved by a pocket Bible that he had inside of his clothing. He was shot on two separate occasions at Appomattox and in Virginia, and the bullets lodged in the concealed Bible. And I just love these little things that scholars and historians are able to dig up in archives. And I love that you started the book with this story of this young man. Why did you start the book with Jones and his photograph? Um, that's another great question. So I, um, I started... First of all, I was just fascinated by this story, right? So you, there's this sort of literary trope in the 19th century um, about, you know, Bibles, even further into the 20th century, about Bibles saving people from bullets, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a, a, a motif. Um, and so I was a little bit sort of suspicious when I first came across this phonograph um, in the in the Library of Congress. 
Um, and so I was just sort of starting out my, my research and trying to figure out, you know, what does it mean to tell a story of photography and religion? What kinds of artifacts am I really going to be able to include in this archive? And I came across this image and was like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is really rich, but I don't really know what it means yet. Um, so I did a little bit of digging. And um, so it turns out that you know, there's, there are all these layers in this initial photograph that I wasn't really able to see at first. Um, and that's kind of why I wanted to start with this, because it was an opportunity to sort of excavate a particular picture in order to uh, sort of shift our attention from this idea of photographs as being simply or even primarily, I should say, records of a particular moment. Uh, and to think instead about photographs as being these sort of mediated objects, right? So um, what I'm trying to do in that introductory inter, introductory vignette there um, is to start not with the image that uh, sort of we, we see today, but with this portrait of a soldier going off to war, right? And this is a very common motif. A lot of photographs um, from the, the 1860s sort of follow this this um, um sort of this uh, this template. Um, and so there's a way of reading that, um, that photograph. Uh, and then you sort of fast forward to the late 1890s when Jones himself is sort of reflecting on his life and he's beginning to think, of, you know, like, what is my story? What is my legacy? Um, and he curates this sort of bigger picture where he um, has his, uh, his, his uh, sort of Civil War photograph, his enlistment photograph, uh, sitting alongside the Bible and the bullets. Mm. And what I wanted to really draw attention to was that the photograph in this instance, in this context, is uh, is sort of um, uh, presented as an object, right? It's not just a picture. It's an object that is, uh, in many ways, this, doing the same work as the relics of the Bible and the bullet in this composition. And then when, when we add to that, uh, when, uh, when Jones um, sort of created this, this uh, comp composite portrait or composite picture in the late 1890s, he titles it A Testament, right? So, I mean, there's, there's a way in which you, you can infer that he's talking about the Bible, like the the the, the the written text, the New Testament that he had held in his breast pocket. But I think that's also sort of telling uh, the ways in which photography becomes a kind of New Testament um, to 19th century Americans. Um, and so that's the, the different layers that are involved in this photograph, I think, help us to parse out the different ways of analyzing photography in the 19th century. Um, and it's all wrapped up in a great story, too, uh, which, which is helpful. Yeah. So, and in the introduction chapter, um, you write, and this is a quote, Not unlike the communion of saints, the communion of shadows was a traffic in objects that at once bound communities into proximity with one another and generated boundaries of exclusion. How do people from the 1840s onward begin to, like, incorporate photographs into their religious lives like is this like a conscious decision they're making or does it just sort of happen accidentally over time i think both and right so there's there's some uh initial hesitation um to use photographs in uh, official religious context right um and you know the, the evidence on that is pretty scant but i think it was it was more um uh you know like this sort of 
as, as we see with later um, technological innovations as well, it's sort of this this moment of hesitation to see like what what exactly is this is this doing to our tradition, to our um, to our polity, and uh, but but I mean, so on the official level, there's some resistance, right? But on the popular level, um, I didn't find any evidence of that at all. So there, uh, what I do in the book is I sort of rein myself in by focusing on five different kinds of photographs that people began to um, adopt into their religious lives. And they began to not only be adopted into their religious lives, but to shape um, how religion was practiced and, and experienced um, from, from different perspectives. So I look at uh, portrait photography. Um, Americans are very, very quick to adopt this uh, new way of representing themselves and each other. Um, for both good and for sort of nefarious purposes, we can be quite honest with that. Um, and then, and then that chapter, I'm looking at how sort of this sort of sudden boom in portraiture in the 1840s, 1850s, and the Daguerrean period um, is uh, sort of the backstory to this this new practice in Bible publication in the 1860s um, of, of including uh, portrait galleries in these those massive family Bibles. So I'm doing a little bit of an excavation of, of that particular archive um, with portrait photography. Um, I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But, it's okay. Um, yeah. I love the quote that you included from Frederick Douglass, who said, This picture-making power accompanies religion, supplying man with his God, peopling the silent continents of eternity with saints, angels, and fallen spirits, the blessed and the blasted, making manifest the invisible, and giving form and body to all that the soul can hope and fear in life and in death. <clears throat> and to me, this Douglas quote is not only beautiful, but it emphasizes a shift in how we memorialize and how we can almost use photographs as a way to like lift up our dead and see them as sort of still living. What does Douglas's quote mean to you? Uh, Douglas's quote means, means a lot. Um, this is the first commentary that I found that was very uh, direct about sort of bringing photography into a discussion of, of religion, um, at least from, from, the, from, from the outside. Um, we know that Frederick Douglass is very, or was um, very attentive to the power of the camera, right? He, uh, as recent scholarship has um, demonstrated, he demonstrated he was the most photographed person in 19th century America. So he knew the power of the, of the, of the camera, the power of uh, the, the photograph. Um, and I think in this, in this quote, like he's really drawing um, his audience. This was sort of, this was not a published um, um, a piece at first. It was some, uh, a speech that he was given, giving. I think that he was um, uh really deliberate in you know articulating this idea of photographs being a kind of religious or spiritual um, uh, instrument or, or tool that we uh, is, is, is a sentiment that's sort of floating around in the 19th century and he really crystallizes that that for me um, so I'm not sure what it exactly means to me other than that uh, this is um, certainly a pivotal moment in the 1860s when photography is um, becoming um, or coming in, into its own as a kind of 
religious or spiritual grammar as much as um, a political or scientific or entertainment um, uh, you know, ex- experience or, or, or concept. Cool. Uh, so what did you learn about how families would incorporate their Bibles into like family portrait galleries? Is that, is that something that happens as well? It is. Yeah, it happens uh, in the 1860s. It's pretty popular um, in both Protestant and Catholic um, editions of these, of these family Bibles until the end of the 19th century. Um, they're, they're used for different purposes by different families. Uh, some patterns that I saw emerge were essentially that, you know, um, similar to or echoing the, the registers, the family registers that have been part of family Bibles for, for generations at this point in time, um, there's this sort of chronicling of, of the family, um, although there's less of um, – and, and the family registries, and what I mean by that are these sort of pages in family Bibles that would record the birth and death, and uh, sometimes the marriage dates of, of family members. Um, in the family portrait galleries, there are images, these studio portraits, because at this point in time, very few people have cameras of their own. So they're, you know, they're going to studios or somebody's coming to their home and creating these portraits for them. They're including these uh, portraits in their family Bible, but they're not often inscribing names or dates. Um, it's just kind of this, uh, this visual or this, even this ghostly um, uh, um, uh, gallery uh, for those of us who find these, you know, a century or more later, there's not a lot of hard historical evidence about who these people were. Um, but that, uh, as I argue in the book, invokes the kind of um, intentional uh, visual work that the, the images were doing. They weren't just supposed to be uh, a historical record of these, these people. They were instead sort of uh, lifted out of history um, by virtue of uh, their photographs being included in, in these Bibles. Old photographs are super interesting, um, and you can find them anywhere from like flea markets and libraries and basements and garages. But where did you dig up the majority of your personal collection? Um, I did a lot of um, flea marketing in and yeah. around in New Jersey in the in the in the uh, aughts and in the early two thousand tens. I, I used a lot of eBay um, to, to build uh, my personal collection, but the sort of patterns and the, the archives, as I, as I call them, that I'm attending to um, come out of uh, sort of a perusal of um, various archives um, uh, at Princeton and in New York and in Philadelphia. Um, and then also close reading of um, sort of trade journals and um, uh, um, other kinds of publications that would indicate, you know, what are people using? What are people interested in in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, and, and later? A, a person that you write about in the book is a spirit photographer named William Howard Mumler. And this is a name that's going to be completely unknown to virtually all listeners, I would imagine. But this was a fascinating section of the book. Can you tell me about who he was and what his job was? Yeah, so William Mumler. I mean, I could talk about him for forever. I know, I bet. It's so fascinating. (laughs) 
so I guess the down and dirty about William Mumler is that he um, he starts as in his own sort of self narration of his life. He's um, you know, he's a jeweler by trade. He's in Boston. Um, and on a Sunday morning, he's tinkering around with this sort of photography uh, equipment, photographic equipment, and decides to take a self-portrait. So he sits in the chair. He prepares the plates. He sort of he exposes the, the plates um, in, the, in the right order. And so he goes back and he um, later develops the plate and he discovers that this is not only a picture of himself, but there's somebody else in the image. Um, and so this is in 1862, and we can sort of think historically about what's going on in, in the U.S. at this point in time. But he begins to sort of market himself as, uh, as a spirit spiritualist, uh, as a spirit photographer or a photographic medium, the, the language varies, um, who will provide pictures, you know, photographs of people who have died. Um, and this becomes enormously attractive, not only to spiritualist circles, um, modern spiritualism had started a little bit more than a decade before this. Um, and so there are spiritualist, spiritualist circles in, in Boston and New York and elsewhere. But he's, he's very adept at not only marketing himself to that particular subculture, um, but also to the broader swaths of American society who are very deep in, um, in mourning. Um, so, um, parents who have lost their children, uh, wives who have lost their, their spouses, um, you know, children who have lost their parents, um, and so on and so forth. He promises that, you know, you, all is not lost, right? You can have assurance of the, uh, of the, um, continued existence of your beloved, um, and not without, I mean, not surprisingly, there's a lot of pushback to this. Right. So he starts in Boston, but by the late 1860s, he's being pushed out of Boston. People begin to be very suspicious of his. <laughs> um, so he finds himself in New York. Um, he begins to make a name for himself in New York. And then again, this sort of controversy follows him. Um, so in 1869, he goes on trial. It's not a, it's not even a trial. Um, he's arrested on fraud charges and he finds himself in police court uh, where um you know, the prosecution is trying to determine or to, to convince the judge, I should say, that this is indeed a crime and he uh, needs to be prosecuted. Um, so there's this uh, uh, sort of hearing in police court that goes on for, for a couple of weeks or several weeks, actually, in 1869, um, where quite literally you have uh, evidence being brought in to try to determine whether or not these spirit photographs are real are they authentic? Um, and uh, the kinds of arguments that are that are brought into this this um, hearing include uh, scientific experts, uh, you know, folks from the from the photographic guild who are convinced that this is fraud, but they can't quite prove it, right? So they can't determine the exact method that he is <laughs> is creating these these images. Um, and then on his own side. Um, his uh, his lawyer begins to sort of uh, press at the very notion of religious authority, right? He begins to ask, well, what if what if this technology was around, um, uh, you know, in, in some of these Old Testament uh, vignettes when you know when God appears um, or when spirits appear to uh, to the ancient Israelites? Um, 
And so this this sort of moment in time where uh, quite literally in this sort of court of American law, you have this um, uh, uh, sort of contest between the the authority of the camera and biblical authority that precedes, you know, historically precedes some of our our, um, narratives about when this kind of uh, conflict between science and religion um, occurs. Uh, so this is happening in 1869, and you know the William Mumler's pictures are at the heart of this this story. Um, I, w- I won't tell you; you'll have to read the book in order to to, to learn what happens in the trial. But um, I love it, and yeah. uh, his—I mean—that is truly an amazing uh, little piece of information about um, his lawyer's argument as well. I mean, just just think about the implications of what he's saying there. It's really in, it's really interesting. Um, so photography is also hugely important because it allows people who like live in the United States and around the world to sort of see the Holy Land, right? Yeah, that's that's the claim, right? Yeah, I know. So like you read about this guy in the book, another really interesting figure is Robert Edward Mather Bain and who, who took an 1894 trip to Palestine. And so he is a St. Louisan, so that's pretty cool because I'm from St. Louis. You teach in St. Louis. And so Bain, a St. Louisan, is he responsible for sort of making the Bible visible to people around the world who can never go there for themselves? I mean, he, I think that his editors would like to think that he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, there, there have been instances of... Um, Americans and, and, and British Protestants and, and others, you know, going to Jerusalem, going uh, to various locations in what they call the Holy Land, um, you know, well before the advent of photography, right? So um, there are panoramas of the Holy Land in the early 19th century. There are sort of magic lantern tours that precede um, this particular series in the 1890s. Um, it had been a subject of stereography, um, photographic stereography from um, at least the late 1860s and early 1870s. So there was a kind of, there was already a visual claim being made by photography um, um, and its champions that, you know, you could access, you could be, you could visit the Holy Land without leaving your, uh, the comfort of your home or, um, you know, your, your Sunday school room or, or whatever, wherever it was. What Bain does, um, and in fact, he's kind of an accident in history. He wasn't part of the original plan to go on this trip, but um, James Lee, the Methodist minister who had been recruited uh, by by, um, the, uh, by the publisher to go on this tour after he had sort of visited um, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, um, and made some connections there and uh, had um, articulated some interest in the power of photography. Um, so uh, James Lee, Methodist minister, and initially proposes just to find a, a photographer on site. Right? They, the photo- photography wasn't really what he was interested in, or at least it was um, sort of a, a secondary um, interest to him in terms of of the professional status of, of what this volume would be. I don't know exactly how uh, he came into contact with Bain, but Bain was a uh, landscape photographer in St. Louis um, and uh, ended up as part of this, this trip. That's really, uh, that's really wild. Yeah. And so what happens here, and I know we're on time here, but what happens here is that um, 
you know, they, they go to the, the Holy Land and these photographs are created as a, uh, as a portfolio. Um, and then later they find themselves in the pages of the Bible. Um, and so the argument there is that this is the first photographic Bible because it coincides with this new technology that enables these pictures to be printed, uh, not um, as a supplement to, but within the pages of the Bible. I love that. Do you have a copy of that Bible by any chance? I do. I have. It's. It was uh, published in multiple volumes, and I have um, a couple of them. That is awesome. Um, in the book, you paraphrase Ezra Pound as well, and I absolutely love this quote because you wrote, uh, "We ought well to remember that there was a time when historians left blanks in their writings. There is much to behold in the communion of shadows, and there are many blanks in these pages for what we cannot know. What mysteries still exist for you on the topics discussed in the book?" Yeah, I mean, part of the reason that this quote resonated with me is because I was doing a kind of reception history that required, um, uh, I mean, that, that was that was really built on um, particular readings of artifacts where there wasn't a lot of um, records of how ordinary people encountered them, right? So we have these these physical archives that remain in. Um, on eBay or in uh, antique shops or in flea markets, right? Um, but very few people then really wrote about what these photographs meant to them or how, uh, if not sort of the, the meaning story, um, how they related to them. Sort of the affect of history is also something that is um, a little bit more tenuous. And so what resonated here with me was that, you know, there, there are always going to be blanks in historical writings, right? Um, and, uh, you know, the, the mysteries that still exist for me, um, are numerous. I, um, you know, what, what I'm trying to sort of think through now is, um, you know, how, how, how do we really know how to read or see these, these objects in the ways that they were received by, you know, a, a, a parent in mourning in, in the 1850s? Um, or a soldier at war in the 1860s. Um, and I, I won't make any claims to having, you know, really uh, uncovered that um, in the way that I think it should be. There's a lot of uh, possible future research options within there as well. And I, I read a book recently um, called Being Muslim by a scholar named Sylvia Chan Malik, and she has a lot of really fantastic photographs as well. And I just am absolutely delighted by seeing what um, what all of you fantastic professors are doing. It's just so cool. Um, can we talk about St. Louis for a little while? Oh, please do. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so speaking of St. Louis, so I grew up there. Um, I grew up out in the suburbs in uh, Fenton and am very familiar with the city. And you are doing some really, really cool projects that I admire in the city called Arch City Religion and Lived Religion in the Digital Age. Um, are these two different projects or are they one? They are. Um, so Arch City Religion began as a teaching project when I started teaching at SLU um, in 2016. It was uh, for undergrads to get out into the city to start thinking about religion as part of the experience of being in St. Louis and not just something that happens, you know, in theology classrooms or in, um, you know, in, in these sort of formal religious spaces. And that grew into what is, is sort of the bigger research project of lived religion in the digital age, where some of the questions 
that came up in Arch City Religion are really animating um, that that uh, sort of bigger research research project. Very cool. And I saw that one of our uh, one of my friends, um, soon to be Doctor Chris Babbitts from the University of Texas, is going to be joining Lived Religion in the Digital Age as well, coming up in the future. Um, so. You have been photographing, documenting many religious sites in St. Louis for Arch City Religion and Lived Religion in the Digital Age. Um, so when you leave your office at SLU and travel like several blocks in any direction, what do you find? Tell me about religion in St. Louis. Right. I mean, Midtown St. Louis is a, um, is, is a great example of the kinds of religion that are that it's sort of right under our noses oftentimes that we don't always see. Uh, so walking out from my office, uh, there's, uh, there's a mosque. Um, it's uh, within the sort of the, the parameters of the campus, but it's a distinct um, uh, from, it's not, it's not owned by SLU. Um, there's an, uh, an International Society of Krishna Consciousness, uh, less than a block away. Um, College Church is one of the um, older Catholic churches in St. Louis, the first English-speaking church, uh, Catholic church in St. Louis. Um, a little bit uh, there, well, um, on the same street that my office is on, there um, there's a Masonic temple and a Masonic uh, cathedral. A block behind that, there's an abandoned um, and burnt-out um, stone church that started um, as an immigrant Protestant church in the 18, um, uh, 1800s, I think around 1870, um, that was, uh, became sort of, uh, 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 that a number of different denominations later, um, claimed, um, there are Lutheran churches, more Catholic churches, uh, Central Baptist Church is not too far away, a large, um, and very, uh, significant historically black, uh, Protestant church. A third Baptist church is is just a, a few blocks away as well. So the kind of formal religious spaces that we might expect in a mapping of religion. Um, we also want to draw attention to places like uh, the Fox Theater, which mm. is not too far from campus, um, and a site, maybe an unlikely site of religion in the city. Uh, we're not too far from the Missouri Botanical Garden. Um, Henry Shaw sort of started this um, out of his own personal interest in, in botany um, in the in the late 19th century. Um, and this is also a place uh, where we can think about religion in the city for a variety of reasons. Um, the St. Louis Arch is not too far from from um, uh, from campus either. In fact, you can see it from almost anywhere on campus. I mean, this, these are other kinds of, of spaces where we can think about religion in and religion of the city. Um, and I guess maybe the last um, example I'll give you um, I mean, in addition to the, the plethora of religious spaces on a Jesuit campus, um, a number of students have begun to think sort of intentionally about the, the school's mascot, the Billiken, as being sort of part of this sort of bigger history of religion in St. Louis in ways that they hadn't thought about. Oh, that is super interesting. And you, you made a website, which I've been perusing regularly in recent days, archcityreligion.org, and you have this neighborhood breakdown of the city. And so tell me a little bit about some of the interesting things you've learned about religion based on neighborhood breakdown. Like, what does geography matter to religion in the city? Right. Like, uh, I think like many other American cities um, that date back to really the founding of the republic, 
um, and that have experienced multiple waves of migration. Um, St. Louis is still very much a city of neighborhoods. Um, and so it's one thing to talk about sort of arch city religion as sort of this big uh, portrait of a very diverse landscape. Um, but there's also opportunities to, to drill into the particular profiles of um, individual neighborhoods. Um, so many of, many of my students who come from St. Louis are very can very easily identify different neighborhoods. You've got Soulard downtown, uh, a little bit south of downtown, that's sort of the French Catholic um, heritage uh, center. Um, uh, Dogtown is more Irish Catholic. Uh, the Hill is is Italian. Um, uh, Bevo Mill is now um, um, sort of the epicenter of uh, a ref- refugee Bosnian community. Um, so there, there are different ways of thinking about religion and neighborhoods um, in, in that sense. Um, but another way of thinking about religion and neighborhoods um, that a number of students, and I, I should just you know pause and give a huge shout out to students at SLU for really sort of um, playing this game with me. I mean, I'm really asking them to do a lot for, for undergrads to, to go out and to really think very intentionally and, and deliberately about what religion is um, outside of the, the definitions that um, are most familiar to them. Um, and so a lot of the work on that site, the Arch City Religion site, is really their work. And so I don't want to take credit um, for what they're doing. It's absolutely wonderful. And the website, which, I mean, obviously, huge, huge shout out to your students as well. I'm amazed at what students are capable of doing whenever we put trust in them to make something awesome happen. Like my students, whenever I lift them up, like, and, and challenge them, like they come through every time. Absolutely. So yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say it's the best part of the job. Yeah. And the website features fantastic photo tours of sites and interviews with prominent St. Louis religious leaders who have been some of your favorite new friendships that you've developed simply by expressing interest in the local St. Louis religious community. It's such a great question, and I, I, I confess that when I, uh, when you ask this, I, I haven't thought of this before. But you know, friendships, or at least neighborliness, is really what we should be striving for here, and that's you know part of what we um, in the lived religion and the digital age project is sort of one of our in, intents here is to really develop these ongoing partnerships and collaborations in order to be better neighbor, neighbors. Um, I've had, you know, a great time getting to know um, uh, Maharat Rory Pickernis. Um, a number of students have um, I've interviewed her. She um, has only been in St. Louis for about five or six years, but has sort of become um, uh, a defining feature, if you will, of, of uh, the local Jewish population and leadership. Um and um, I mean, there, there are so many other people that sort of have, have made this this possible. Um, maybe the uh, even even on campus, working with digital humanities and with colleagues in the Department of Theological Studies, um, this is truly a collaborative exercise, both on campus and in the community. So I live in Buffalo and Buffalo and St. Louis have so much in common. Like if I walk around downtown Buffalo and downtown St. Louis, oftentimes I feel like I'm in the same place in a lot of ways. Um, This is a project that seems like it could be replicated in most any major city. Like I feel like I could start a website, Nickel City 
is the nickname of Buffalo. So nickelcityreligion.org. And I feel like I could start that tomorrow and go out and do a project like this. Have you inspired others to follow your lead on Arch City and put it into practice in their towns at all? Um, that's, well, I don't know about inspiring, but I think we, we certainly want to um, help model this kind of work um, for folks who, um, for, for educators, for others who are interested in um, creating spaces to, to really think and um, think about religion, lived religion in, 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 in their cities. We've had the great fortune of working with um, some faculty at the University of Pittsburgh who are also um, sort of starting a project on uh, religion in Pittsburgh. Um, Rachel Cranson um, is sort of spearheading that, that project. And as part of Lived Religion in the Digital Age, we've been fortunate to have re- sort of received some, some funding to really put some, um, uh, you know, put, put, put our, put our backs into this work of, uh, uh, you know, of not sponsoring, but, um, facilitating some of these, these projects in other places through fellowships, through teaching, through teaching fellowships, through research fellowships. Um, you know, a lot of people around the, the country are really interested in the local, um, and we want to be part of that bigger conversation. What are some of your next goals in scholarship and in your projects and teaching? What are you working on? What are we working on right now? Um, well, for the uh, uh, in the foreseeable future, we're, p- we're putting together a symposium for the fall that will really kick off this sort of national, we hope will kick off, it's kind of ambitious to say this um, uh, right now, but will help to sort of kick off this sort of national conversation around the um, the questions that we're asking in the project. So that we're looking forward to to that. As you mentioned earlier, we've got some amazing fellows who are just now um, starting to work with us, and we're you know thrilled to be learning from them as they do their uh, research and develop coursework and uh, uh, different pedagogical tools over the next year. Um, we'll do uh, uh, more fellowships next year and then the year after as well. So we really are looking forward to the, these um, collaborations, both locally and nationally. Um, for me, my, my research is really sort of bound up with this, um, uh, initiative right now that I'm working on a, a, a cultural history of religion in St. Louis that I hope will, um, sort of help me to, to ground my, um, I, uh, my research in a, in a way that will be useful to, to others. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Rachel Lindsay, where can people find you if they want to follow your work and know more? I know you got some websites and some social media. Yeah, so if you want to stay on, uh, in touch with the Lived Religion Project, you can follow us on Twitter at Lived Religion. Um, the website for that is religioninplace.org. Um, and track me down at AAR or anywhere else. I'd love to talk with you about this. Awesome. Well, Dr. Rachel Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. It's been a delight to talk about your projects and your book, Communion of Shadows. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This has been great. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com.
or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.